Hello all and welcome to episode 28 of the podcast. This is, and indeed I am, the Dream Filter. Today we'll begin on the Libyan Civil War, which grew from the Arab Spring. It began mid-Feb 2011 and was dramatically escalated on March 19th as NATO joined in on the side of Western-backed militants comprised of violent extremists, spoken of in corporate media as freedom fighters. The war ended in late October with Libya, once the most prosperous country in Africa, bombed into oblivion by NATO and at the mercy of its rampaging jihadist proxies on the ground. The regime of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi was overthrown. The leader himself killed on the 20th after a convoy he travelled in was bombed by NATO aircraft, slaughtering dozens. He didn't perish in this initial attack, but badly wounded in what was a coordinated assault by NATO and its proxies, was later found hiding in a drain by the latter, who sodomized him with a bayonet, then shot him in the head. A similar fate was apparently suffered by the rest of the convoy who didn't die in the initial attack. Such activity was endemic from the outset. Many civilians among the victims. But as global media focused on sins of the Gaddafi regime, real and imagined, the crimes of Western-backed rebels were conveniently ignored. The death tolls unknown, but estimates range from 10,000 to 50,000, 90% of them after NATO started its bombardment, with thousands missing or displaced. The most exhaustively compiled analysis is titled Libyan Armed Conflict 2011 Mortality, Injury and Population Displacement. African Journal of Emergency Medicine, Volume 5, Issue 3, September 2015, pages 101 to 107. Mohamed A. Dor, Abdallah El Bozedi, Agnea A. Dao. Confirming the deaths of over 21,000 in the year after the revolt began. Human Rights Watch puts the toll of civilians killed by NATO bombs at 70 at least almost certainly a grotesque understatement, the more likely figure being in the hundreds. Among the overall dead were thousands of rebels, likewise pro-Gaddafi forces, and many thousands of civilians killed by both sides in accidental crossfire, cold-blooded murder, and under NATO bombardment. NATO didn't lose a single perpetrator. The seven-month air campaign included over 26,000 sorties, more than 128 a, nearly 9,700 strike sorties, about 45 a day. 7,700 smart munitions were used as well as naval power, with embargo enforcement and missile strikes. Ten countries, led by the UK and France with major support from the US, kicked off NATO's Operation Unified Protector, but 19 ultimately took part, hitting 6,000 military targets. The cost of the assault was borne in different measure by each of the 19. The UK and US spent most, roughly 1 to 2,000 billion pounds and dollars respectively. Next was Italy, half a billion to a billion euros, France and Turkey, 
up to about half a billion euros and US dollars respectively. Denmark over 100 million euros, and so on. It's not easy to find a figure on economic and infrastructural damage to Libya, but its GDP in 2010 of $75 billion US was more than halved in 2011, with a brief spike thereafter. Then a dramatic slump in conjunction with a renewed civil war that broke out in 2014. This gave rise to the Islamic State terror group in Libya and, as of early 2020, had not yet concluded. The economy of Libya is oil-dominated. Its reserves are the biggest in Africa, in the top ten globally. Pause for a moment. Ponder on that sentence. Ponder. Prior to the Arab Spring, it exported 1.6 billion barrels per day to nations like China, Italy, Germany and Turkey. In 2011, this dropped below half a million before a brief spike, then dramatic slump in conjunction with the renewed civil war, though there's been uptick as of late 2016. The damage to the oil sector in the revolution, interim chaos and renewed civil war has left Libya's oil industry in dispute, a shell of its former self. It's well known that under Gaddafi, for all of his faults, oil has been used for the sustainment of social welfare for Libyan people. Libya, with its highest life expectancy and highest per capita GDP on the continent, reasonable women's rights compared with other countries in the neighborhood, free electricity and health care, and interest-free loans, was transformed by the Western government media military complex into a failed state. A smoldering third-world ruin ravaged by lawlessness. It became awash with 1,000 to 2,000 rival factions and militias including Islamic State and other genocidal extremists. Fiefdoms also arose. 10 to 20 million weapons in unofficial circulation have made it a major conduit for arms smuggling and regional instability. Hundreds of thousands of internally displaced and refugees became reality as deed assassinations, abductions, urban combat, and blockades of oil infrastructure, decimation of minority groups, including Christians, once tolerated under Gaddafi. The outbreak of the ongoing civil war in 2014, perhaps even deadlier than the revolt of 2011, has seen the rise of two or three simultaneous governments, rival parliaments. As even admitted by CNN in a November 14, 2017 report, which is careful not to lay blame on the West, open slave trading in various places across southwest and central Libya, with young African men sold for as little as the equivalent of a few hundred US dollars, is another result of NATO's actions. The chaos of the interim between revolution and civil war also wrought many hundreds, possibly thousands of directly related fatalities. This episode will focus on the build-up of NATO's entry into the war, from after the overthrow of Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak on February 11, 2011. But we'll touch on the broader plan to implement regime change in Libya, 
which preceded the Arab Spring well and truly. Before we start, a query. Nicolas Sarkozy of France, war criminal. David Cameron of Britain, war criminal. Every other leader who pushed for the NATO operation and got involved, war criminals. With one exception, Obama. Out of respect for the religious sensibility of virtually the entire mainstream media and its minions, I will not say a bad word. In fact, whenever I say his name, I shall leave a brief silent gap for you to do as you wish. Pray to him, ponder, or just imagine a single heavenly chant, the kind you hear in a movie when someone appears bathed in bright light with a halo. Here's my query. Do you think that ace US fighter pilot Johnny Squarechin, his equivalent in Britain, France or myriad lapdog patrons that go along, is a force for good? Let me tell you about Johnny Squarechin and his type. If the order came, he'd lob a bomb right on your head, wiping out you and all around you in a flash. He'd fly back to base without a second thought. By the time you and your friends or loved ones, likely with spilling entrails or missing limbs, are being picked out of the rubble, Johnny Squarechin is likely stuffing burgers into his face as he watches online porn. Now though, today's episode. We shall start with reference to an Al Jazeera article, Feb 4, 2011, a week before the overthrow of Mubarak, Sajza Wickstrom, titled, Calls for Weekend Protests in Syria. Social media used in bids to mobilize Syrians for rallies demanding freedom, human rights and the end to emergency law. Let's read some. Calls for protests in Syria are spreading on social media websites following popular uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt. Organizers say protests will be staged in front of the parliament in the capital, Damascus, on Friday and Saturday, and at Syrian embassies across the world. Several pages have been set up on Facebook, with the most popular one, named The Syrian Revolution, liked by about 13,000 people by Thursday. However, many of those writing comments on Facebook appeared to be Syrians living abroad calling on their brothers at home to protest. Dot, dot, dot. Organizers said demonstrations would be held in the Syrian cities of Damascus, Oms, Aleppo and Kamishli, and in countries including Canada, US, UK, Sweden and the Netherlands. Dot, dot, dot. There were also reports that a pro-government demonstration would be held in Damascus to coincide with the other rallies. Facebook is officially blocked in Syria since November 2007. However, many young Syrians bypassed the hurdle by using proxy servers and, in August last year, there were about 30,000 Facebook users registered in the country. As unrest broke out in Egypt last week, web users in Syria says the government tightened its grip over internet access by increasing the number of blocked sites and chat services. Syria's emergency law, in place since 1963, 
makes demonstrations unlawful unless authorized by the government in advance. When protests occur, security forces move in to disrupt. Human Rights Watch reported on Thursday that a group of 20 people dressed in civilian clothing had beat and dispersed 15 demonstrators, halting a candlelight in Damascus on Wednesday in support of the Egyptian mass protests. The police, who were present nearby as the incident occurred, failed to intervene. The US-based rights group cited one of the gathering's organizers as saying, Earlier reports had said that police were beating the demonstrators. Dot, dot, dot. Calls for protests in a number of Middle East countries are circulating on Twitter, including Yemen, February 3, Algeria, February 12, Bahrain, February 14, and Libya, February 17. End of article. For context, here's part of an online article. February 9, two days before the overthrow of Mubarak. Malta Today, James Dobono, titled, Libyan Opposition Declares Day of Rage Against Gaddafi. Gaddafi could be facing Day of Rage on February 17 as he expresses solidarity with poor Egyptian president. Libyan leader Mohammed Gaddafi is apprehensive on possible student-led demonstrations against him after opposition groups declared February 17th as a day of rage against Libyan leader Mohammed Gaddafi, Italian newspaper Corriera della Sera reports today. Dot, dot, dot. He also blamed pan-Arab network Al Jazeera for the pro-democracy protests. Gaddafi warns Libyans not to get involved in any acts which will harm security or cause chaos, vowing that their tribes will be held responsible in the event of doing so. After 41 years in power, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi is the longest-serving ruler in Africa and the Middle East, and also one of the most autocratic. Protest of any kind in Libya is strictly prohibited, but there have been reports of unrest in the city of al Baida. The government also recently announced increased spending on public housing in a bid to head off growing disquiet. Dot, dot, dot. Before we move on to February 17th, I wish to read from the first half of another source, a special report from the Middle East Monitor, April 2014, by Dr. Wala Ramadan, titled, Media Coverage of the Arab Spring and the New Middle East. I don't agree with all that is in the report, and it's far too lenient, in fact, rather misguided on the topic of Western corporate media. She's apparently a Muslim Brotherhood sympathizer, keen on the overthrow of Mubarak, not near as much on that of Morsi, and I have no knowledge or view of the implied presence of what she describes as Zionist lobbies in the background of the events in Egypt but it's important for one to read widely. Here we go. Ever since the symbolism of 26-year-old Tunisian Mohamed Bouazizi's self-immolation in December 2010 and the subsequent eruption of a people's revolution in Tunisia, the Middle East has been in unprecedented turmoil. After decades of suffering under oppressive dictatorships, with basic human rights denied, 
Suddenly, the barrier of fear was broken, and the people rose to topple their dictatorial governments. Whilst countries were ablaze with revolutions, state-owned media denied any such activity on the ground. State TV channels in countries like Egypt showed empty streets and squares and denied the existence of any sort of uprising. Social media networks played a big role leading up to and during the revolutions, particularly in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Syria. Shutting down the internet supply in the country in an attempt to quell and contain the unrest did little to serve the dictator's interests. In fact, in Egypt, the Day of Anger, a key event of the revolution, was held after the internet supply was cut and phone networks provided limited service. Meanwhile, the uprisings attracted international media attention. In the West, the uprisings were welcomed with some hesitation. After all, the dictators in the region were supporters of Western foreign policy and were paid to stifle their people and allow the West and Israel to carry on with their agendas. Threats to the Western-backed dictators thus caused an uneasy stir amongst politicians and Zionist lobbies. Dot, dot, dot. In the US, however, CNN and MSNBC headlines were more interested in the impact of social media as the driving force behind many of the uprisings, claimed New York Times columnist Frank Rich who gave examples from CNN reports in which journalists talk about how the use of social media was the most fascinating aspect of this whole revolution. Facebook and Twitter seemed to be a more important focus for coverage and analysis for these channels than the people suffering under oppressive, dictatorial institutions and their struggle for freedom. Journalist Richard Engel set the record straight in an interview on MSNBC. This didn't have anything to do with Twitter and Facebook. This had to do with people's dignity, people's pride. People are not able to feed their families. Indeed, analysis of the situation showed that demonstrations were taking place in places where internet access was minimal or non-existent, and that many protesters in Tahrir Square in Cairo for example, did not own mobile phones or have internet access. Speaking to journalists in London, Al Jazeera's chief political analyst Marwan Bishara explained, shortly after the beginning of the Arab Revolution, the media began to fixate on the role of social media, ignoring other social and political factors. While important, there is no need to sensationalize the role social media played treating it as if it were a silver bullet. Facebook doesn't organize. People do. Twitter won't govern. People will. New technology was undoubtedly a feature. Why else would the ousted Ben Ali and Mubarak regimes crack down on internet supply and telephone networks during the revolutions? Social media was not, however, the prime driver of the Arab Spring. As Anne Alexander said, due to the prevailing story which ascribes to technology unrealistic powers, the pre-existing voice of dissent, which had led to hundreds of strikes across Egypt since 2006, has been eradicated from the narrative. Dot, dot, dot. 
Friends, before we get into this, let's consider the case of Al Jazeera, pivotal with its coverage early in the Arab Spring. I refer to an article by Nawa Alalawi, 2015, titled How Media Covered Arab Spring Movement Comparison Between the American Fox News and the Middle Eastern Al Jazeera, Journal of Mass Communication and Journalism. Fox News, of course, is very much a media arm of the Republican Party, just as CNN, MSNBC, Etel are arms of the Democratic Party. Ultimately, though, they're all arms of the establishment, part of the same corporate, mainstream media. In short, the author is of the view that Al Jazeera was openly supportive of the Egyptian revolt, while Fox was tentative, using the turmoil and ascent of the Muslim Brotherhood to make partisan criticism of Obama. Just as the democratic media arms do, it should be noted, when a Republican is president. On Libya, Fox was mixed in tune with its overall coverage of the revolt. While Al Jazeera was ostensibly biased in favor of the revolt, against Gaddafi and his regime. Moreover, the tendencies of Al Jazeera, a Qatari-based media network sponsored by the government of that country, see it accused of abandoning its reputation of trailblazing journalism to become an open mouthpiece for the flow of state propaganda. The author of the article notes that Al Jazeera, perhaps to avoid tension with Saudi Arabia, largely ignored unrest in Bahrain and in what coverage it gave, reported only from the perspective of the regime in that country. Al Jazeera is also accused of largely turning a blind eye to similar unrest in Saudi Arabia and Oman. To paint you a picture of the start of unrest in Libya, I read from Libya, Background and U.S. Relations, Congressional Research Center, February 25, 2011, Christopher Blanchard and Jim Zanotti, pages 10 and 11, dot, dot, dot. The ongoing unrest in Libya can be traced back to mid-January 2011 as part of the region-wide wave of popular protests beginning in Tunisia in December 2010 against repression, political corruption and poor and or inequitable economic conditions. Although the Libyan government announced housing benefits and price controls, and released 110 members of the opposition Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, brackets, see Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, brackets, LIFG, below. In attempts to placate popular discontent, grievances persisted. They were possibly fueled by the other protests taking place throughout the region, particularly in Libya's eastern neighbor, Egypt where the military took power from President Hosni Mubarak on February 11. On the evening of February 15, the demonstrations that led directly to the uprising began when several hundred people gathered in front of the Benghazi police headquarters to protest the arrest of attorney and human rights activist Fedi Tabel. 
as the February 17 day of rage neared, protests escalated in Benghazi and other cities despite reported police attempts at dispersion with water cannons, tear gas, rubber bullets, and batons. There were multiple reports of protesters setting government buildings on fire. Dot, dot, dot. The interim between the 15th and 17th presaged a militant opposition. Several police stations were torched across the country, including in Bayida, an eastern city, as Facebook groups hyped up the Day of Rage. In Zantan in the south, protesters marched and set fire to a security building and police station. Action heated up near the main Benghazi cop station, where protesters, some there to mark a massacre of over 1,000 inmates about 15 years prior at Abu Salim prison, Tripoli, were armed with rocks and petrol bombs. Up to 40 from both sides were injured. The arrested human rights activist Fedi Tarbell, who was quickly released, was an agent of the victims' families. Al Jazeera was dropped by the state-owned cable system and intermittent cyber war, like that which had been seen in Egypt, began to be waged, with activists using Twitter to inform others how to circumvent internet restrictions. Meanwhile, over 200 prominent Libyans, you know the type, activists, lawyers, officials from human rights groups, opposition figures, students, signed a petition demanding that Gaddafi step down. Before we detail what's happened on the 17th, I shall read from a retrospective December 19, 2014 article by Brian Cloughley, available online at www.counterpunch.org slash 2014 slash 12 slash 19 slash NATO's minus destruction minus of minus Libya slash. Here it is. On March 19, 2011, the United States led NATO countries in a blitz of aircraft and missile strikes against the government of Muammar Gaddafi. Libya's Bati dictator who was visited in 2004 and 2007 by British Prime Minister Tony Blair. In 2007 by French President Sarkozy. In 2008 by US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and in 2009 by Italian Prime Minister Berlusconi, all of whom cordially assured him that relations between their countries and his were comfortable. Gaddafi was a despot and persecuted his enemies quite as savagely as the dictator Hosni Mubarak in neighboring Egypt. But life for most Libyans was comfortable and even the BBC had to admit that Gaddafi's particular form of socialism does provide free education, health care, and subsidized housing and transport. Although wages are extremely low and the wealth of the state and profits from foreign investments have only benefited a narrow elite. Parenthesis, which doesn't happen anywhere else, of course. The CIA World Factbook noted that Gaddafi's Libya has a literacy rate of 94.2%, parenthesis, better than Malaysia, Mexico and Saudi Arabia, for example. And the World Health Organization reported a life expectancy of 72.3 years, 
among the highest in the developing world. Dot, dot, dot. The BBC reported that, as Mr. Blair met Gaddafi, it was announced that Anglo-Dutch oil giant Shell had signed a deal worth up to £550 million for gas exploration rights off the Libyan coast. The U.S. oil companies, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Marathon Oil Corporation, and the Hess Company were also deeply involved in Libya's oil production because it has the world's ninth largest oil reserves. Things were looking good for Libya, but on January 21, 2011, Reuters reported that Muammar Gaddafi said his country and other oil exporters were looking into nationalizing foreign firms due to low oil prices. He suggested that oil should be owned by the state at this time so we could better control prices by the increase or decrease in production. Then in February, immediately after Gaddafi's hint of nationalization of Libya's oil resources, there was an uprising by rebels who wanted to overthrow him, and on March 17, the UN Security Council established a no-fly zone in Libya to take all necessary measures to protect civilians under threat of attack in the country. The insurgents were supported by the U.S., Britain, and 12 of their 26 NATO allies. Parenthesis, notably not Germany or Turkey. Three Arab nations, parenthesis, not including Saudi Arabia. And Sweden, which has abandoned honorable neutrality and become a NATO country in all but name. Brazil, China, Germany, India, and Russia excluded themselves from the resolution, advocating peaceful resolution of Libya's internal conflict and warning against unintended consequences of armed intervention. Two days after the no-fly resolution, the U.S.-led NATO onslaught began and continued for seven months, until the end of October. On April 30, a U.S. missile killed one of Gaddafi's sons and three of his grandchildren in what NATO called a precision strike against a military command and control building. When asked about a massive attack on Gaddafi's residential compound, the Pentagon spokesman announced that we are not targeting his residence. We have no indication of any civilian casualties. Dot, dot, dot. The action on February 17th was arranged in part by the now-defunct National Conference for the Libya Opposition, formed in London, June 2005, by external anti-Gaddafi elements who wanted regime change and imposition of Western ideology. Firstly, let's point out why it pays to be skeptical of media. On the Wikipedia page, Timeline of the 2011 Libyan Civil War, before military intervention, under 17 February, day of revolt, dot point two, it states, matter-of-factly, in Benghazi the government released 30 prisoners from jail, armed them and paid them to fight against protesters. The linked citation is the Feb 18, 2011 Al Jazeera article, Deadly Day of Rage in Libya. Reports of more than a dozen deaths as protesters heed calls for mass protests against government, despite a crackdown. It cites 
Abdullah, no other name given, who, in an indirect quote, said he'd seen six unarmed protesters shot dead the day before. The item then reads as follows. He also said that the government had released 30 people from jail, paying and arming them to fight people in the street. This was Wikipedia's proof, an indirect quote from an anonymous person who may or may not exist, published by a propaganda mouthpiece for the Qatari government. Most mainstream media reports of the day, Al Jazeera, BBC, Evening Standard, et al., suggest about a dozen were killed in Benghazi, mainly from gunshot. This violence was potentially sparked by unconfirmed reports, not covered in corporate media, that protesters had raided a local armory, which would happen a lot during 2011, and were fired on by security forces. When the main coverage is from mainstream media, who largely regurgitated info from biased, Western-backed activists or other sources, real or imagined, the truth is awfully elusive. Roughly half a dozen protesters were apparently killed by snipers in Bayida over a 24-hour period, with many injured. Casualties were reported in Abjabia, Dana, Riban, Northwest, Zentan, Northeast. Dozens, perhaps hundreds of arrests were made as cop cars, stations and government buildings, including not only in Bayida, but further afield in Benghazi, Zentan, Etel, were hit with makeshift bombs. Largely ignored by mainstream media were big Prukadathi rallies in the capital Tripoli, where internet coverage had become patchy. And the lynching of a black man, possibly a Prukadathi mercenary, by militants in Bayida. Let me read from a retrospective article. A rebellion divided, spectra of revenge killings hangs over eastern Libya, April 1, 2011, updated on the 30th of April, 2018. Graham Smith, The Globe and Mail. Dot, dot, dot. Paranoia about mercenaries remains strong among the rebels, despite assurances from human rights groups that most of the fighters among the pro-Gaddafi forces are Libyan citizens. Rebels have frequently treated dark-skinned prisoners more harshly than men of Arab ancestry. That distinction was made brutally obvious to doctors at the intensive care unit of Albeda's main hospital on Feb 17, when they admitted two men, one black, the other with the local olive-skinned complexion, who stood accused of fighting the rebels. A crowd gathered outside the hospital, calling for blood. Some armed rebels pushed their way into the ward. They had guns and knives, said Mahmoud Anas, 27, a resident on duty that night. It was really scary. They wanted to kill the black soldier. Doctors managed to hold off the enraged youths until a few hours after midnight, when the rebels dragged the two patients into the street. An old man tried to stop them, said Faraj Khalifa, a doctor. He said our religion does not permit the killing of unarmed men. But the youths were very, very angry. They hanged the black man in front of the hospital. The patient with lighter skin was beaten, shot, and returned to the emergency room, Dr. Khalifa said. 
A cell phone video later circulated among residents showing a Christian cross tattooed on a black man. Locals pronounced this as proof that the hanged man, whom they called John, has been a non-Muslim outsider. Dot, dot, dot. Retrospection aside, we're two days into the revolt. Was it really spontaneous? From now on, let's dispense with nonsensical terms like demonstrators or protesters. There would have been some legitimate protesters early on, but such elements were in the minority. On February 18, thousands of militants gathered in the area of the police station and courthouse, Benghazi. In part of a pattern also seen in Egypt, if not Tunisia, insurgents apparently stormed Kouafia prison to free political prisoners. Activists then spread online rumors that authorities were freeing prisoners to terrorize the population. Regime buildings, including a police station, were also set alight. As the day went on in Benghazi, the presence of security forces was greatly reduced. There was a prison break at Al Jadida jail in the otherwise calm Tripoli, four escapees killed. Unrest was reported in Tobruk, where the airport was closed. In Bayida, two security forces personnel, at least one black-skinned, were lynched by rebels. This was part of a racist, Western-backed hysteria claiming that any black person in Libya was a pro-Qaddafi mercenary and fair game, even though Libya had a sizable minority of black-skinned people. Take this hysterical statement from The Guardian, February 18, 2011, Ian Black and Owen Balcott. Libya protests, massacres reported as Gaddafi imposes news blackout. Dot, dot, dot. Amer Saad, a political activist from Derna, told Al Jazeera, The protesters in Al Baida have been able to seize control of the military airbase in the city and have executed 50 African mercenaries and two Libyan conspirators. Even in Derna, today, a number of conspirators were executed. They were locked up in the holding cells of a police station because they resisted. And some died burning inside the building. This will be the end of every oppressor who stands with Gaddafi. Gaddafi is over, that's it. He has no presence here anymore. The eastern regions of Libya are now free regions. If he wants to reclaim it, he will need to bomb us with nuclear or chemical bombs. This is his only option. The people have stood and said they will not go back. Dot, dot, dot. Hmm. Peaceful, right? The myth of an African pro-Gaddafi mercenary army, invented by Western-backed rebels as justification to declare open season on all black-skinned people in Libya, was pushed by mainstream media including Al Jazeera, Al Arabia, The Guardian, particularly absurd propaganda in The Mirror, New York Times, The Telegraph, Time Magazine, etc., and in social media such as Twitter from early on, which we'll delve into another time. For more on this, try www.informationclearinghouse.info slash article 27957.htm.
where you'll find an April 24, 2011 article, Maximilian Forte, titled, The War in Libya, Race, Humanitarianism, and the Media. Internet service was patchy on the 18th before it was broadly cut by the government while mobile phone service was heavily restricted. The insurgency took root in the West as it had in Benghazi, Bayida, Tobruk, etc. in the East. The death toll among militants thus far was roughly 60. The situation worsened on the 19th. Up to 15 were shot dead at a funeral in Benghazi for people recently killed, as Benina International Airport, second biggest in Libya, reportedly fell. Thousands of rebels were on the debris-strewn streets across town. Riots morphed into insurgency, aided by defections from army and police, which caught on elsewhere. A military barracks was stormed and fell, as the military used heavy weapons, helicopter gunships in deadly street battles, with courts, police stations and prisons under attack. State TV ignored unrest, which had also broken out in Misrata, northwest. The military largely withdrew from bases in Baida, like in Benghazi. This wasn't Egypt, where the military was considered friendly. Both army and police were targeted. The revolt went on in Derna where, like elsewhere, rebels fought with security forces and irregular elements. Amid wildly fluctuating death tolls, British Foreign Secretary William Hague made a statement condemning Bahrain and Libya for their use of live ammo to quell unrest. On the 20th, Benghazi fell out of regime control. Police were expelled and more military barracks, including the heavily fortified, guarded, well-stocked Khatiba, were seized. It fell after a three-day siege by what Al Jazeera and other media were still referring to as civilians and protesters. The siege and conquest of Khatiba saw these civilians and protesters armed with rifles, bombs and rocks, deploy suicide bombers in explosive-laden vehicles. Defections during the siege helped rebels, who ultimately capitalized. Dozens were killed across both sides. Security forces not killed or captured fled Benghazi. Those captured faced a fate worse than a quick death by a gunshot. Across town in Al Hawari, it was a similar story as another base fell. Bayida and Tobruk had either already fallen as Benghazi or weren't far off. If rebels weren't heavily armed before, they were now as base after base fell across Libya. Armory after armory looted while defecting security forces brought what weapons they could. Several clerics and tribal leaders signed a statement against violence, while Ghat and Ubari, southwestern towns, saw unrest after some from the Tuareg tribe, a Saharan folk with a presence in southern Libya, began to follow the lead of those from the Wafala tribe, north-central Libya. Saeed al-Islam Gaddafi, a son, went on state TV and made a defiant address, warning of civil war while saying the death toll was under 100. Tripoli was hit later in the day as rebels stormed Green Square, downtown, leading to battles that raged into the night. 
Though details are patchy and best met with skepticism, coverage led by Al Jazeera, who relied mainly on the word of activists and anonymous witnesses, pro-Gaddafi forces opened fire on rebels and went after those who fled. Aircraft was used in order to bomb groupings such as a funeral procession and rebels preparing to storm an army base. Regime buildings were set alight including a parliamentary building, cop station and security building. A pair of state media broadcast bureaus were seized. By some accounts, hundreds were killed, which already put Tripoli on par with Benghazi. On the less hysterical side of things, Human Rights Watch now said roughly 300 had been killed nationwide. Reports also spread of the expulsion of police from the northeastern city, Sabratha, on a day which EU foreign ministers in Brussels endorsed an anti-Gaddafi, pro-rebel statement, and EU nations took action to remove citizens from the war zone. To top it off, the Libyan representative to the Arab League resigned in protest at his own regime. Likewise, the ambassador to China. Tension or unrest was also reported in Algeria, Bahrain, Iran, Kuwait, Morocco, Oman and Yemen. Within a week of the outbreak, we have an indisputably violent insurgency. Whether you're for it or against it is besides the point. Let's look at some synchronized Western propaganda promulgated by corporate media in the period of the 17th to 20th February. Gaddafi loyalists threatened to snuff Libya protests. February 18, 2011. Updated a day later, AFP. Gaddafi loyalists threaten protestors. February 19, 2011. News.com.au, Australia. Sourced from AFP, very similar to the AFP article. Gaddafi loyalists threaten Libyan protests. Presumably from the same time, oddly updated on February 24, 2015, sbs.com.au, very similar to the news.com.au article, which is very similar to the AFP article. The SBS item is sourced from AAP, co-owned by News Corp Australia which is also the owner of news.com.au. Students, I point all of this out only to highlight how corporate media reaches into the far-flung corners of the globalist empire. On the 21st came resignations of Libyan ambassadors to several nations. An ambassador to the UN broke with his regime and called for the imposition of a no-fly zone as rebels tightened control over Benghazi, removing vestiges of government control or presence amid ongoing looting of armories, arbitrary distribution of weapons. Voice of Free Libya, a rebel broadcast, began to transmit out of Benghazi, Begida and Misrata with seized gear and broadcasting premises. The chief of the eastern al Suwaya tribe had reportedly warned he could block oil exportation. Military defections, some now from the Air Force, went on as Tripoli lapsed into chaos, with reports of more strikes on rebels and rumors the Navy was shelling the capital. A state-owned TV building was also ransacked overnight. At least one cop station set ablaze as widespread looting took hold. 
Unconfirmed reports spread of a deadly foiled raid on a main Gaddafi compound, while Reuters and Foreign Secretary William Hague conspired to spread a quickly debunked conspiracy theory that Gaddafi had fled for refuge in Venezuela. For more on that, go to a short online item, Feb 21, 2001, titled, Hague, Some Information Gaddafi on Way to Venezuela. On the 22nd, Gaddafi made a brief address from Tripoli on state TV to quash the theory. Defections intensified as aircraft stepped up attacks on rebels in Tripoli, including bases of defecting units. Unconfirmed reports spread of the defection of a Libyan naval vessel may be headed for Malta, where Air Force defectors had gone. Lord David Owen, not Mr. Not even Sir, Lord, former UK Foreign Minister, called for a UN-imposed no-fly zone. Propaganda could speak for total war against Libya in an appearance on Al Jazeera, which, given that most corporate media could only report from afar, enjoyed a virtual monopoly on coverage to that point. Gaddafi made a second address, this time from inside a Tripoli compound. It was defiant and went for about an hour. In it, he warned of an Islamic takeover of Libya, and said he would use full force to take back Libya. Angela Merkel, hardcore globalist autocrat, sorry, stoic old grandmother type, responded at a press conference. She labeled Gaddafi's address frightening, threatening to apply sanctions on Libya. By the end of the day, in the midst of synchronized hysteria from mainstream and social media, nations, NGOs, human rights groups, etc., the UN Security Council, after a closed session, made a one-sided anti-Qaddafi statement. The Arab League suspended Libya from its meetings, threatening to also suspend its membership. On the 23rd, Obama flanked by Hillary Clinton, made a White House address on Libya, accessible at obamawhitehouse.archives.gov slash the minus press minus office slash 2011 slash 02 slash 23 slash remarks minus president minus Libya. Here's a portion. Good afternoon, everybody. Secretary Clinton and I just concluded a meeting that focused on the ongoing situation in Libya. Over the last few days, my national security team has been working around the clock to monitor the situation there and to coordinate with our international partners about a way forward. First, we are doing everything we can to protect American citizens. That is my highest priority. In Libya, we've urged our people to leave the country and the State Department is assisting those in need of support. Meanwhile, I think all Americans should give thanks to the heroic work that's being done by our foreign service officers and the men and women serving in our embassies and consulates around the world. They represent the very best of our country and its values. Dot, dot, dot. The United States also strongly supports the universal rights of the Libyan people. That includes the rights of peaceful assembly, 
free speech, and the ability of the Libyan people to determine their own destiny. These are human rights. They are not negotiable. They must be respected in every country. And they cannot be denied through violence or suppression. In a volatile situation like this one, it is imperative that the nations and peoples of the world speak with one voice. And that has been our focus. Yesterday, a unanimous UN Security Council sent a clear message that it condemns the violence in Libya, supports accountability for the perpetrators, and stands with the Libyan people. This same message, by the way, has been delivered by the European Union, the Arab League, the African Union, the Organization of the Islamic Conference, and many individual nations, North and South, East and West. Voices are being raised together to oppose suppression and support the rights of the Libyan people. I've also asked my administration to prepare the full range of options that we have to respond to this crisis. This includes those actions we may take and those we will coordinate with our allies and partners, or those that we'll carry out through multilateral institutions. Dot, dot, dot. I've also asked Secretary Clinton to travel to Geneva on Monday, where a number of foreign ministers will convene for a session of the Human Rights Council. There she'll hold consultations with her counterparts on events throughout the region and continue to ensure that we join with the international community to speak with one voice to the government and the people of Libya. Dot, dot, dot. Grab your sick bag and let's continue to discuss the 23rd. A meeting of EU diplomats in Brussels, led by Germany and France, reached consensus for sanctions to be imposed on the Libyan government. A subsequent statement from Catherine Ashton, a high-up EU figure, threatened even tougher action. More international and internal diplomatic pressure was piled on and hyped in mainstream media. Tripoli was quiet, but it was a different story in Tobruk. The eastern city of Cyrenaica, Misrata and Zawiya, both northwest, Sirte in the north, where Gaddafi came from, El Kums, northwest, Zintan and Zuara, both northwest, were either disputed or under rebel control. Zabratha, northwest, wasn't under control, as troops battled rebels who'd attacked and burned down several government buildings. News began to seep out of severe rebel persecution of black-skinned people. In an article by Abigail House Luna, Time magazine, online, titled, Among Libya's Prisoners, Interviews with Mercenaries, it was admitted that rebels in Bayida had lynched at least 15 black men in front of the courthouse on February 18th to 19th. Many more were incarcerated and or unaccounted for. While they may have fought for Gaddafi, most came from around Sabah, a city in Saharan Libya. Also on the 23rd, 22 government soldiers were captured in Dema by a group led by an Al-Qaeda-linked commander named Abdul Hakim al-Hassadi. At least 15 of them were executed within a day in the nearby village of Maktouba, 
all of which you can read about in the earlier mentioned article in the Globe and Mail. Tobruk and its environs fell under rebel control on the 24th, security forces largely gone. The regime fortified military positions across Tripoli in anticipation of a rebel push from the east, where bases of defected units were hit by airstrikes. US, China, European countries continued evacuating citizens. Thousands of African migrant workers fled over the borders. Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, the North African branch of the terror group, announced online that it was joining the rebels. More violence broke out in Zawiya, where a battle at a mosque killed 10 rebels, injuring many more. Pro-Gaddafi forces also attacked a rebel-held airport near Misrata. Four rebels and one pro-Gaddafi fighter were killed in the skirmish, many wounded. Part of the base was retaken. Security intensified in Tripoli, where arrests of suspected rebel agents were made. And, according to Al Jazeera, Gaddafi supporters attempted to storm the Qatari embassy. More mid- and high-level regime defections took place. The globalist empire began to tighten the screws. An article in The Telegraph during the day, Robert Winnett and James Kirkup, titled, Libya, Gaddafi's billions to be seized by Britain. Ministers have identified billions of pounds that Colonel Muammar Gaddafi and the Libyan regime have deposited in London. The Daily Telegraph can disclose. Outlines how not only Britain but supposedly neutral Switzerland announced a freeze of Gaddafi's assets in their countries. And Hillary Clinton, in an upcoming UN conference in Geneva, was expected to push for sanctions and a no-fly zone. Leaders from the US and Europe reportedly called for Libya to be kicked out of the UN Human Rights Council, among other steps. People, remember this. Whether a person, group or country is good, bad or indifferent, is totally irrelevant. If one is independent of the globalist agenda, one must be demonized, hit and obliterated. On the 25th, a Friday on which angry protests were held in half a dozen other nations including Iraq and Yemen, the day after nationwide protests had already been held in the latter, there were big demonstrations in the east, which had already largely fallen out of central control, as deadly clashes took place across Tripoli, with reports that Mitiga Airport, a key airbase just east of the capital, may have fallen to rebels. Gaddafi addressed a crowd of supporters at Green Square, and overall death toll estimates now ranged from several hundred up to over 2,000. The situation in the West was unclear, though ongoing defections did not augur well for the regime. Clashes were ongoing in Misrata and Sawiya as loyalist Gaddafi forces tried to consolidate or reconquer lost positions and territory. International corporate media continued referring to rebels as protesters. A little report on these tolerant, freedom-loving protesters, which didn't get any coverage from mainstream media, appeared on National Public Radio on the 25th. It's at www.npr.org. It's titled, In Libya, African Migrants Say They Face Hostility, by Ophibia Quist Acton. Pardon my pronunciation. 
I'm going to read you the whole thing, but you can also listen to it if you click the link on the site. Among the foreigners desperate to flee the troubles in Libya are thousands of African migrants from all over the continent. They say they've become targets for Libyans who are enraged that African mercenaries are fighting on behalf of the regime. Michelle Morris, host. Among those desperate to flee the troubles in Libya are thousands of African migrants from all over the continent. As NPR's Ophibia, Chris Darkton reports, they say they've become targets for Libyans who are enraged that African mercenaries are fighting on behalf of the regime. Ophibia, Chris Darkton. Tens of thousands of sub-Saharan Africans are employed in Libya's oil industry and in other sectors. They want out, and not just to escape the violence. Samuel, who's from Ghana, told the BBC he's frightened. Samuel is in Benghazi, Libya's second city, which is in the hands of anti-Qaddafi supporters. But it's these Libyans the Ghanaian and other Africans fear. Samuel. Holy God, Holy God, Holy God. For five weeks now I'm indoors. Everybody's panic. We need help. We need help. Please, we need help. They do not like the blacks, so please, we need your help. Chris Darkton. The hostility Samuel describes stems directly from reports that Muammar Gaddafi has mercenary recruits in his security forces from Africa who are indiscriminately killing protesters. Saad Jabbar, Deputy Director of the North Africa Center at Cambridge University, is monitoring developments in Libya and confirms Africans have become targets. Professor Saad Jabbar, brackets, Deputy Director, North Africa Center at Cambridge University. I tell you, these people, because of their skin, they will be slaughtered in Libya. There is so much anger there against those mercenaries, which suddenly sprung up. I think it is urgent to do something about it now. Otherwise, a genocide against anyone who has black skin and who doesn't speak perfect Arabic. Chris Acton. This Turkish oil worker, who's managed to escape from Libya, told the BBC he'd witnessed violence against his African colleagues. Unidentified man. Brackets. Through translator. We left behind our friends from Chad. We left behind their bodies. We had 70 or 80 people from Chad working for our company. They cut them dead with pruning shears and axes, attacking them, saying you're providing troops for Gaddafi. The Sudanese, the Chadians, were massacred. We saw it ourselves. Chris Darkton. Experts say Gaddafi's hired African fighters probably come from neighboring Chad, Niger, Mali and Sudan. Some who've been in Libya for years and other newer recruits. Zimbabwe today denied reports its soldiers were deployed in Libya. Zimbabwe has this week arrested and charged with treason 40 people who had gathered to watch news footage of Egypt's revolution. End of transcript. While I don't question the account of the Turkish oil worker, it clearly fits the pattern, I've looked for extra info on the massacre he described. I wasn't able to find any and am unsure if he was referring to this incident. But I can tell you that on April 3, 2011, Chadian government spokesman Kelzu B. Pahim Dubi made a grim statement on the plight of Chadians in Libya, saying that dozens had already been murdered by rebels to that point. 
As a parsley tongue-in-cheek side note, Chad has always struck me as an unusual choice of name. And until another country is correspondingly renamed, perhaps to Nigel or Derek, I won't budge on this. On the 26th, there were unconfirmed reports that security forces had withdrawn from parts of Tripoli. In the east, where supposedly impromptu committees had been set up to fill the vacuum left by the collapse of central authority in various locations, work was reportedly in progress to set up a Benghazi-based interim puppet government. This was confirmed later in the day, with Mustafa Abdul Jalil, former justice minister, named as a key figure. The Libyan ambassador to the US quickly recognized it as the official government of Libya. More defections resulted in the seizure of a naval base at Benghazi, consolidating rebel control of the city. After a phone call he had with the wonderfully harmless Angela Merkel, the White House released a statement on behalf of Obama, openly calling for regime change. Clinton quickly backed it up with a statement of her own a day after the U.S. had announced sanctions. The U.N. Security Council on the 26th voted unanimously to adopt Resolution 1970, a one-sided act condemning the Libyan regime, froze assets of officials, referred Libya to the International Criminal Court, and imposed an arms embargo on the country. Before long, the U.S. would be arming Libyan rebels, with heavy weapons also given by Egypt and Qatar. While on May 24, a brazen video released by NATO itself showed the HMCS Charlottetown, a Canadian frigate supposedly enforcing the embargo, sends personnel to board, but then authorize a rebel boat, laden with contraband weapons, to proceed unhindered to its destination in Libya which we may touch on in another episode. On the 27th, Tripoli was quiet, with security further beefed up, though the rebellion was moving closer to the capital, putting the squeeze on supplies of basic necessities. Zawaya, 50 kilometers west of Tripoli, appeared ready for a showdown as rebels deployed armored vehicles and heavy weapons across the city in anticipation of a regime offensive to wrest back control. In Benghazi, the foundation of the National Transitional Council, the puppet interim regime, was formally announced at a press conference while Gaddafi held a phone interview with RTV Pink, Serbia. William Hague appeared on the Andrew Marr Show, BBC One confirming that UK diplomatic immunity for Gaddafi and family has been revoked. Foreign Minister Kevin Rudd from the fluorescent poisonous frog told Al Jazeera that his government had applied unilateral sanctions. Belgium, is that even a real country, joins a number of other European and North American nations who'd closed embassies and pulled staff out of Tripoli. In Washington, before she left for Geneva, Clinton called for regime change among assembled media and offered whatever assistance was necessary to bring it about. On the same day, Nick Mio of The Telegraph had an article published which got little attention, titled, African mercenaries in Libya nervously await their fate, 
Mercenaries captured in Libya are facing an uncertain future, writes Nick Miu in Al Beda. While it's bought into the one-sided comic book narrative of good rebels, bad Gaddafi African mercenaries, it's mentioned a few videos which had been presented to the paper. One showed a policeman executing a rebel, another a black pro-Gaddafi combatant lynched from a street post, the other showing a black man hung upon a meat hook by rebels. On the 28th, the day after the resignation of Tunisian Prime Minister Mohamed Ghanoushi amid ongoing unrest, large protest action still underway in Bahrain, Oman and Yemen, a travel ban and asset freeze were placed on deposed Egyptian President Husni Mubarak and family by the Attorney General of that country. Clinton arrived in Geneva for the UN Human Rights Council meeting, where Hague of Britain was also present. The former stepped up calls for regime change, seeing all options were on the table to do this, as the latter threatened anyone who supported Gaddafi. At a Brussels meeting of energy ministers, the EU agreed on a range of sanctions to bolster those approved by the UN. This was confirmed by Catherine Ashton, also in Geneva. Amid an international flurry from all and sundry to join the pylon, German Foreign Minister Guido Westerweller, after a talk with Clinton in Geneva, threatened to freeze payments for Libyan oil. David Cameron told his parliament that the military was developing plans to enforce a no-fly zone. And a statement by White House spokesman Jay Carney confirmed U.S. involvement in this as the U.S. began deploying naval ships in the region. As the chaotic retreat of African migrant workers over the borders away from the hot spot went on, international air evacuations also continued. On the ground, pro-Gaddafi forces attempted to take back border crossings with Tunisia, held by rebels, while the Air Force bombed another munitions depot in the east in an ongoing campaign to hinder the flow of firepower and hardware falling into rebel hands. Also, Zawiya and Mizrata came under attack by security forces in indecisive clashes that caused casualties on both sides. Libya, unlike Tunisia and Egypt, was on the list of seven countries to be taken down in five years, as revealed by General Wesley Clark more than once. With Iraq invaded and under globalist occupation, it was time to flick the switch on Libya. For context, I now read from Tony Seed's web blog, an item titled The Arab Spring, U.S. Black Ops and Subversion, Introduction by Seed, and a book review by Dr. Stuart Gian Bramhall. The book in focus is the updated La Arabesque American <laughs> by Ahmed Ben Sada, which is about U.S. orchestration of the Arab Spring. Now I read. Dot, dot, dot. Democracy, America's biggest export. According to Ben Sada, the MENA Arab Spring revolutions have four unique features in common. None were spontaneous. All required careful and lengthy, brackets, five-plus years, planning by the State Department, CIA pass-through foundations, George Zoros, and the pro-Israel lobby all focused exclusively on removing reviled despots without replacing the autocratic power structure that's kept them in power. 
No Arab Spring protests made any reference whatsoever to powerful anti-U.S. sentiment over Palestine and Iraq. All the instigators of Arab Spring uprisings were middle-class, well-educated youth who mysteriously vanished after 2011. Nonviolence regime change. Ben Sada begins by introducing nonviolence guru Gene Sharp. Brackets C the CIA and nonviolence. His links with the Pentagon and U.S. intelligence. And his role? As director of the Albert Einstein Institution in the Color Revolution. In Eastern Europe and the attempted coup against Hugo Chavez in 2002. The U.S. goal in the Arab Spring revolutions was to replace unpopular despotic dictators while taking care to maintain the autocratic U.S.-friendly infrastructure that had brought them to power. All initially followed the nonviolent precepts Sharp outlines in his 1994 book, From Dictatorship to Democracy. In Libya, Syria and Yemen, the US and their allies were clearly prepared to introduce paid mercenaries when their Sharpian revolutions failed to produce regime change. Dot, dot, dot. Indeed, if the so-called peaceful route which paid off early in Tunisia and Egypt, is not fruitful for the globalist agenda, then it's time for the mercenary route. That's R-O-U-T-E. Your mind is still in the gutter, is it? If the mercenary route is not fruitful, it's time for the North Atlantic terrorist organization to blow the place to smithereens from the air. More on this down the track. You've already been given a taste, but let's look more at who these mercenaries in Libya really were. I read from Washington's blog, September 22, 2016. It's a retrospective item, titled, British Parliament Confirms Libya War Was Based on Lies. Turns a Nation into a Shit Show. Spread Terrorism. The main image in the article shows a bunch of bombs each with a love heart painted on it, raining down onto a Muslim land. A perfect representation of the government-media-military complex. Let's read. Parliamentary report confirms what the alternative media has been saying for years, is the subtitle before it continues. Specifically, a new report from the Bipartisan House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee based on interviews with all of the key British decision-makers, review of documents and on-the-ground investigations in Africa, found that the Libyan war was based on lies, that it destroyed the country, and that it spread terrorism far and wide. Dot, dot, dot. The article goes on to detail the situation at length, with documentation and links. The British Parliamentary Report, which we will likely refer to from time to time during our focus on Libya, is at www.publications.parliament.uk slash PA slash CM 201617 slash CM Select slash CM FAFF slash 119 slash 119 PDF. It's about 50 pages long and is titled Libya. Examination of Intervention and Collapse and the UK's Future Policy Options.
Third report of session 2016 to 2017, House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, September 6, 2016. Now, though, I continue to read from the article. Dot dot dot. The Libyan government was fighting terrorists. Is a subtitle before it goes on. The report also notes that the Libyan government really was, as Libyan dictator Gaddafi claimed at the time, fighting Islamic terrorists. Intelligence on the extent to which extremist militant Islamist elements were involved in the anti-Gaddafi rebellion was inadequate. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Abdel Hakim Belhaj and other members of the Al Qaeda-affiliated Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. were participating in the rebellion in March 2011. Full stop. Secret intelligence reports from 2011, written before and during the illegal US-led attack on Libya and recently obtained by the Washington Times, state there is a close link between al-Qaeda, jihadi organizations and the opposition in Libya. Indeed, the Libyan rebel commander admitted at the time that his fighters had links to al-Qaeda. And see this. We reported in 2012, the US-supported opposition which overthrew Libya's Gaddafi was largely comprised of al-Qaeda terrorists. According to a 2007 report by West Point's Combating Terrorism Center's Center, brackets, sick, The Libyan city of Benghazi was one of al-Qaeda's main headquarters and bases for sending al-Qaeda fighters into Iraq prior to the overthrow of Gaddafi. There are then a pie graph and a diagram relating directly to the topic before the article continues. The Hindustan Times reported last year, there is no question that al-Qaeda's Libyan franchise, Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, is part of the opposition. Bruce Riedel, former CIA officer and a leading expert on terrorism, told Hindustan Times, it has always been Gaddafi's biggest enemy and its stronghold is Benghazi. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Brackets. Incidentally, Gaddafi was on the verge of invading Benghazi in 2011, four years after the West Point report cited Benghazi as a hotpoint of al-Qaeda terrorists. Gaddafi claimed, rightly it turns out, that Benghazi was an al-Qaeda stronghold and a main source of the Libyan rebellion. But NATO planes stopped him and protected Benghazi. The Daily Mail reported in 2014, a self-selected group of former top military officers, CIA insiders and think tankers, declared Tuesday in Washington, that a seven-month review of the deadly 2012 terrorist attack has determined that it could have been prevented if the U.S. hadn't been helping to arm al-Qaeda's militias throughout Libya a year earlier. The United States switched sides in the war on terror with what we did in Libya, knowingly facilitating the provision of weapons to known al-Qaeda militias and figures. Claire Lopez, a member of the commission and a former CIA officer, told Mayo Online. Dot, dot, dot. The article goes on to mention by name and level criticism at a certain significant someone from the time. You can read it yourself, but as an advocate of religious tolerance, I refrain from doing so on this podcast. 
Now we go back to March 1, 2011, on which Kevin Rudd from the fluorescent poisonous frog, also in Geneva, told AAP, which released an article also circulated by The Age, that a no-fly zone should be imposed. More fighting was reported from Zawiya, Mizrata and other locations, where security forces were attempting to reimpose control. More military defections occurred, including senior figures. Rebel control of the east was consolidated as more towns came under their control. More than one rebel spokesman, including former regime interior minister Abdul Fattah Yunis, in an Al Jazeera interview, called for Western air strikes on Libya, as the UN General Assembly officially bans Libya from the Human Rights Council. The major reason put forward by those calling for a no-fly zone was to prevent Gaddafi from using his air force from bombing innocent people. I will now read from a site called counterpunch.org, an item titled The Top 10 Myths in the War Against Libya by Maximilian Forte, August 31, 2011. I thoroughly recommend you read it. Dot, dot, dot. On February 21, when the first alarmist warnings about genocide were being made by the Libyan opposition, both Al Jazeera and the BBC claimed that Gaddafi had deployed his air force against protesters. As the BBC reported, Witnesses say warplanes have fired on protesters in the city. Yet, on March 1, in a Pentagon press conference, when asked, do you see any evidence that he, parenthesis Gaddafi, actually has fired on his own people from the air? There were reports of it, but do you have independent confirmation? If so, to what extent? U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates replied, We've seen the press reports, but we have no confirmation of that. Backing him up was Admiral Mullen. That's correct. We've seen no confirmation whatsoever. Dot, dot, dot. The article, with linked documentation, also made it clear that no evidence existed which indicated any use of helicopter gunships against non-combatants. On the second, an attempt by security forces to retake Briga, a small northeastern coastal town, largely stalled, with dead on both sides. A military craft was reportedly shot down over Ashdabia, a regional northeastern city, as it attacked a weapons depot. It was reported by Al Jazeera that Benghazi rebels had begun their march on Tripoli, with convoys already dispatched. The National Transitional Council puppets government called on the UN to impose a no-fly zone and conduct airstrikes on Libyan government forces echoed by the Arab League who signaled a willingness to participate, as Gadamis, a western border town, reportedly fell under rebel control. On the 3rd, Egyptian Prime Minister Ahmed Shafiq, appointed by Husni Mubarak on January 29, early in the Egyptian revolt, resigned amid ongoing civil unrest. Flores Moreno Ocampo, chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, said at a press conference in The Hague that Gaddafi and associates will be investigated for crimes against humanity. He also said rebels would be investigated. A transparent attempt to portray the globalist organ as impartial.
According to Reuters, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez floated a plan to mediate between the regime and rebels, which was accepted by Gaddafi and considered by the Arab League. However, details were vague, and it would not be accepted by rebels bent on violent revolution. On March 3rd, with internet coverage across most of Libya down, which would be the case throughout much of the revolt, came an article at www.pri.org, titled, Can Cell Phones Bring Down Gaddafi? The article made mention of the Voice Act, otherwise known as the Victims of Iranian Censorship Act, signed into law in 2009. Despite its haughty exterior, the main purpose of the act, through the strategic allocation of $55 million, was to sow discord across Iranian society and subvert its government. The article pointed out how the act could be applied in the case of Libya while The Economist, in an online item, No Clear Byline, titled, The Libyan Conundrum, Don't Let Him Linger, Should the Arabs and the West Do Anything to Remove Muammar Gaddafi? Shield for War On the 4th, a Friday, the Air Force conducted at least one more airstrike on Ajdabiya in an attempt to hit another weapons depot at a captured base. While more casualties were reported on both sides and among civilians in fighting at Briga and Ajdabiya, not far apart in the northeast. Heavy fighting was reported in Razlanuf in the east and Zawiya just west of Tripoli. Razlanov would partially fall by the end of the day, but face a counter-attack as the situation around Zawiya remained a stalemate. In Tripoli, where arrests, abductions, battles and other violence had ebbed and flowed, security was tight in anticipation of the time after Friday prayers. While thousands took part in scattered unrest across the capital, with reports of tear gas and intermittent gunfire, it did not pose an immediate threat to the regime. Interpol joined in on the globalist pylon, issuing a global alert of Gaddafi and 15 associates in support of UN Security Council Resolution 1970 and the International Criminal Court. Reports of a reduced flow of refugees into Tunisia, roughly 10,000 per day of late, were made, with some speculating that pro-Gaddafi forces had sealed off parts of the border. The day also saw reports of protests in Cairo, Baghdad, and Sunni on Shia violence in Bahrain and northern Yemen, accompanied by large protests in the latter. On the 5th, upon which, according to Reuters, Saudi Arabia banned all protest activity in the Shiite regions of its eastern provinces, as protests continued in Oman, a Libyan military assault on Zawiya was apparently repelled, with dozens dead across both sides, and among civilians, armored vehicles captured or destroyed. Stalemates kept, while a regime warplane was downed near Razlanuf, two pilots killed. From Razlanuf, where dozens had also died in fresh fighting, it was expected now that rebels would move further west along the coast in the direction of Sirt, hometown of Gaddafi little more than 200 kilometers away. On the global front, the Puppet National Transitional Council held its first official meeting in Benghazi and, in a press conference, former Justice Minister Mustafa Abdel Jalil said, reading from a prepared statement, the council declares it is the sole representative all over Libya.
On the 6th, fighting was reported in Bin Jawid between Raz Janouf and Sirte, but some rebels were forced to retreat back towards Raz Janouf as the regime, backed by air power, launched a counterattack, the rebels reportedly downing up to three craft in the battle. The situation in the area remains unclear, as it also did in Misrata, where dozens of soldiers, rebels and civilians had been killed in fresh fighting. And also Zawiya, where the regime said it had seized armored vehicles and heavy weapons from rebels in the ongoing fighting. Up to two dozen soldiers were also taken prisoner there, quite possibly a fate much worse than a quick death on the battlefield. In Tripoli, meanwhile, sustained gunfire was heard, but information was sketchy. We will kick off the next episode from March 7th. Ten days before the UN would authorize NATO to become the official air force of Al-Qaeda and other violent extremists in Libya. Until then, my boys and girls, you already know the rest, don't you? Question everything. Do your own research. Keep a healthy, open mind. Above all, never forget, you've been given an intellect, so use it. Goodbye.